And for the people that could say yes to that question and that they're, they're followed across their lifetime, you see um, uh, like a significant difference in terms of health and longevity. So you are far less likely to die if you can say yes to that question. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Hey folks, it is RJ Singh here and we are up for another fantastic show today. Thank you for joining us now. On today's show, we have Dr. Joe Mitchell. She is clinical and coaching psychologist and director and co-founder of The Mind Room in Melbourne, Victoria. Now, we have her on the show today to talk about burnout, mental illness, all things that many people today are suffering from. And from an employer's perspective, we want to understand how do we continue to cultivate an ideal and safe and flourishing work environment so that our people can ultimately have a great time, perform, and stay. Now, there's a lot in society today around this concept of the great resignation, whether it's true or false, I'm not here to debate that. But what we do know is that engaged people, engaged staff are people that ultimately stay. And if we can help our people as employers be better, do better, live better, ultimately we're all going to thrive, right? And that's what we're here today to talk to Joe about. Now, Joe has a real focus on professionals and performers in sports, small businesses, and the creative industries. Her focus is on building lives with meaning and connection and the management of burnout and mental illness. And we talk a lot about meaning, the importance of meaning and why it's just so critical for individuals that who want to thrive on a day-to-day basis to truly have a sense of meaning and purpose. As always, please rate this podcast. Let us know how we are going. Anyways, folks, I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of Joe. Joe, welcome to Ultra Habits. This has been a long time coming. Obviously, the viewers don't know that we went through a major production to get together in person in Melbourne, and we tried to put tech together, and unfortunately, it didn't pan out, but we have made it here today. So that's the good news. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And um, I have to say that I still just love meeting people in person, so it feels much better now to do this conversation having met you. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, people still give me the option nowadays, even though we can meet to to do something in like Zoom or Teams because they assume it's far. And these are like critical first meetings, right? Like, it's like, why would I want to do that? Like, if you're trying to really build rapport and connection, there's so much, so much new nuance that happens in person that I think we're just getting lazy. We're just happy to kind of let's just make it convenient and efficient and do it by technology. I don't think that's a great thing. Yeah, I think making that really conscious decision about does this meeting actually, will it be better in person or uh, is it okay to do it online rather than just going online by default? Yeah, I agree. I agree. So I am really glad to have you on the show. Uh, I had interviewed Jenny Valentich, and she had referred to you a couple times in her book, Everything Harder Than Everyone Else. And I really like getting thought leaders on the show, particularly when they're local. I think it's it's great to really advocate and have people that are local and also understand that, you know, 30, 40 percent of our viewership is from the continent of Australia. Having that local context, I think, is really really, really good. So I dove into your work and became really interested around what you guys do at the Mind Room. And I think I'll I'll leave it to you to explain to the audience where and how you guys focus yourselves at the Mind Room. Like, what are you guys all about? Okay. So 
Um, we are a health, well-being, and performance psychology community. Um, so uh, we started it um, almost ten years ago now. And so my background is as a, a clinical psychologist, but. Before I did psychology, I, I um, was working in sport, everything from kind of that community development end up to working with elite sport in the UK for British Olympics, UK Sports Institute, and, and then back in Australia with um, the state sport institutes and AFL heading their mental health programs. Anyway, so the transition for me into psychology was um, I loved it. I loved the learning and I loved understanding the human mind. However, there was this kind of question mark because the training that we got was very much around um, human dysfunction, pathology, everything that's wrong with being um, or that can go wrong for us as, as humans and kind of missed that piece that I think sport does really well, which kind of talks to our potential, our strengths, what we can do and how we can realise that. So in creating the mind room, even though, you know, a large part or the bread, bread and butter of the business, certainly in the first um, sort of five, six years has been the clinic and the seeing people one-on-one -on -one and working around mental health and well-being issues, um, it was designed with this idea that we are going to work with people across not just what's wrong with them but what's right with you and how can we help you to live this kind of rich, rewarding, meaningful life. So we started off with what we know, which is the one-on-one -on -one work, and the last probably three or four years we have really begun to grow the B2B work that we do. Um, so I would say we are a very intentional, consciously built uh, business with well-being at the very heart of what we do and how people can be the best versions of themselves, both in their um, work and non-work life. Um, and to that end, we've, you know, actually the last couple of years moved to a new location. We have designed it with... Um, that in mind as much as the work that we do, but the physical environment. So it was great that you actually got to come and see it and see the physical space and, and maybe get a feeling for that. So in practical terms, what we actually do is the one-on-one -on -one consulting and clinical work. We run classes, workshops, experiences for people to come in and learn about their mind, learn to know it, love it and grow it. Um, and we also work with businesses around their wellbeing strategies, but also the stuff I really love to do is these creative collaborations where mental health, wellbeing, um, culture, technology all come together um, and we help businesses do what they do best. So that's interesting. Let's rewind back to that. That's an interesting comment you made that sports psychology is quite aspirational. And I suppose the reason it is, is because the environment understands the potential of getting it right. <laughs> I.e., you know, there's a lot of money to be made, it's high impact. Whereas what's interesting <clears throat> for the everyday Joe, the approach is more what's wrong. And I suppose it's not as aspirational because it's easier, maybe, if I'm looking at it as a cynic, to just give the average Joe a pill. Like, I don't know. I'm not saying that's why that view is the way it is. What's your take on that? Well, I think that the human brain has, well, not just I think it, but the research shows us has this negativity bias. We tend to go to threat danger before we see strengths, opportunities. And that's, you know, about survival. We have to be able to notice threat and danger and respond quickly if we were to survive as a species. However, what that then does is it's introduced this kind of bias in the way that we have set ourselves up as societies where um, our first instinct is to go to the problem, not to how to thrive. So we go to survival rather than thriving. Um, I think that that played out for sure in um, science and in psychological um, sciences in particular, in that you begin with a body of knowledge that focuses on a problem. You create only data, only research that talks to problems and then you have conversations about that and so all the attention is dragged over to those kinds of ideas. Fortunately for us, about 20 years, there was a bunch of academics who kind of stopped that and said, hey, wait a minute, we're missing a really big part of the picture um, in that we 
we, we've missed this pillar, which is understanding human potential, human strengths, human um, thriving. So let's stop and take a look at it. So the, the, I think it's changing. We've now got 20 years of research that talks to that agenda, but I think you see it play out everywhere. I mean, I, like I'll, I'll run a a workshop or something and you'll ask people to spend five minutes, you know, just talking in small groups about what's wrong or what's not working, really hard to get them to shut up or to stop talking. Ask them to talk about what's right, what's good, harder to get that conversation started and much easier to wrap it up and bring people back. So I think that we just have this bias that we need to actively work with. So when you were in sport, there would have been individuals that you would have identified that had a naturally stronger psychological position, or let's just call it in the context of your dialogue, a fit mind. What were the hallmarks of those athletes that had a fit mind and what could we transition to the everyday person or in particular for ultra habits, the executive? Like what were some of the outcomes of just if I were to sit and, and watch a person that we would deem is a, you know, having a fit mind, what does that actually look like? Great question. And I would say that what I'm going to talk about transcends industries. So it's not just about the athlete and the sports environment. It's about leaders in business of all types as well, because you know, we're all human. Yeah. And we've all got the same brain. We're just applying it to different problems, issues, challenges in the world. Um, so I break it down into three components. Yeah. So if we want to be mentally fit and, and maybe if I go back a step there as well, because I think that the physical sciences have done an excellent job at helping us to understand the difference between illness, injury and fitness. Yeah. That these are two different concepts. So say, RJ, you um, were unwell, what would, like you had some kind of illness that you didn't feel like you could treat at home. So what what pathway would you take for something like that? I could go to the doctor, the GP, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you'd go get some expert help to guide you. And then the doctor's either going to give you medication or lifestyle modifications or maybe surgery, depending on what's happening here. Now, if I talk to you about, hey, RJ, you're really not very fit and you need to go get fit, who are you going to go speak to or what are you going to do? Go to the gym, get a PT. Yeah, radio. So physical science is amazing at helping us make that distinction. Mental health, psychology, not so great at having that different conversation. So when I'm talking about mental fitness, I mean fitness, not illness, um, that it is a different pathway um, that were activated, clearly related, like the, I think when people's fitness is low, you're more vulnerable to illness and injury, but you can also be injured and be mentally fit as well. So I think that that's the difference. So the three parts to it, if I'm breaking it down, what I will talk to people about is um, clarity, strength, and flexibility. So if we go through each of those, clarity is just the performers, the people that really do well are the ones that are able to notice their own experience. So they know themselves really well. So they can notice their thoughts, their emotions, um, and see how that relates to their behaviour and to the external world or environment that they, they want to navigate. So I think the clarity is the knowing yourself. The strength part of the equation is really about your capacity to manage your mental energy and your attentional focus because performance flows where your attention goes. So understanding what um, activities in your life restore or deplete your energy, knowing how to use that energy well, how to pace it, and then how to focus attention because, you know, it's hard to have attention if you don't have energy, how to then focus attention on the things that really matter for you. Now, in a world that is really distracted, attention is, is kind of vital, being able to sort of not be dragged away by the noise and stay focused on the things that matter. 
So clarity, strength, and then this last piece of the pie of, a, of someone that is mentally fit is really flexibility, that capacity to take the clarity and the strength and to turn that into wise action. So to approach approach situations with curiosity, with openness, with an accepting kind of mindset and make good decisions and behave in ways that take you closer to that sort of flourishing life for you, whatever it will be. So I think when you got those three things working well together, that that is what gives you the capacity to perform in part of your world. It may be business, sport, performing arts, whatever. I had a conversation today with somebody who is a a friend of mine who is a raging, raging alcoholic, Um, but very young and grandiose, very, has an X factor and performs And from an outcome perspective, one would view him as a performer. And I think he understands it, but I'm trying to widen his view on the definition of high performance. Because I think a lot of people compartmentalize performance. I made a million dollars this year. Well, what does that mean across the board, right? So, I mean, I imagine you would have clients that, from a financial perspective, have done very well. But there may be other areas that their lives are in shambles. Do you find it's quite complex to deal with individuals like that because they confuse parts of their success as a successful life? Yeah, I think the very heart of the question that we're asking people is to articulate what a meaningful life is for them or a flourishing life is for them. And and honestly, if someone says to me, well, success and a flourishing life is $4 million in the bank, then I'll be asking them, um, and what's the money for? Because it's not the money, it's what the money does for you that tells us about what really matters. So, you know, it might, for some people, it's the, the striving and the challenge and the like working towards that kind of financial goal that really is the part that makes them feel alive, not the necessarily the having the money, which is often why you see people so dissatisfied. They kind of strive for something, achieve their goal, but it doesn't bring them the sense of, I don't know, contentment, satisfaction, pleasure that maybe they thought it might. So I think helping people to unpack it and actually really talk about well, what matters most. And you know what? There's one thing that tends to come out every single time when you break it down for people, um, and that is our connection, connection to other people, um, but also to place and to the community or culture that we live in. That's, you know, often it's that simple. We just want to feel connected, valued, appreciated by others. When someone starts to make the shift and they're developing a fit mind and they're starting to flourish in their lives, what kind of things will they notice that's happening for them? Like what does flourishing look like? Yeah, good question. Flourishing, I think, is going to look different to each person. However, there's probably some common um, parts to it for Um, all of us. So I think that one of the things that we notice in people that flourish is that they tend to have a higher ratio of those kind of pleasant or enjoyable emotions in their life to the unpleasant emotions. doesn't mean that you don't feel anger, sadness, um, guilt, like any of those emotions at all, but it's just that the balance is tipped more in favour of the pleasurable emotions. So that's a good indicator of, yep, I'm probably doing okay in life. Not enough in and of itself, but a good flag. But also that sense of I have um, enough personal autonomy in my life. I am in charge of and get to make my own decisions. Um, The capacity for mastery of my world, so environmental mastery, I can navigate the environments that I find myself in, again, whether that's an elite sports kind of environment or it's a tech startup or, um, you know, you're a a surgeon in um, 
uh, a hospital, you know, the sense that I am good at what I do, a sense of self-acceptance. Often when I hear people that have, you know, alcohol, drug, other substance um, abuse issues, uh, I think it kind of centres around some kind of uh, undeveloped relationship with themselves and understanding of themselves and acceptance of who they are and how they want to be in the world. So I think that there's an acceptance of ourselves, what's and all. But then it goes beyond the relationship with us to the relationship that you have with other people in your life. And then more broadly to, you know, being able to answer questions like, do you have a sense of meaning or purpose? Um, do you feel like you're growing? They're the kinds of things that people, when they're flourishing, can answer yeah to and maybe describe to us what that might look like. How does that sound when you think about your own experience? Yeah, I I would agree. I think what flourishing has looked like for me has shifted through time and through and through age. And I think as you appropriate things, you realize that. It's interesting. I would say in many ways, I'm trying to get back and well, I am not trying. I am. I've been on this journey of simplification. So it's almost like, you know, the 20s were trying to climb up this hill and then trying to go back down to originally where I actually kind of was in terms of being a little bit more free, a little bit more less inclined for financial insecurity. Like I think we build this life around, you know, high mortgages, high costs, certain things. And then we realize what actually, you know, for me in particular, what makes me happy is living out in the bush, running a lot, good balance of work and family. And so it's now for me about getting back to and moving towards and continuing to move towards a more simple way of being and living. I think the good thing for me was just because of my my journey and my past and my alcoholism, like I, from the beginning, um, as I got indoctrinated in Alcoholics Anonymous, like I knew stuff wouldn't make me happy because I already knew the alcohol was an external driver that couldn't suffice whatever internal dis-ease I had. So I kind of already had that level of awareness that this flourishing needed to come from within. It was an inner game thing. Um, And I do agree with you. I think for each person, it means something different, but I think it's important for each individual to look for meaning and look for their own meaning. And, uh, you know, we talked about the interesting uh, dynamic as well as of, of the role of the organization enabling their people to flourish and thrive. I think it's a tricky conversation. I know that we're in interesting times where, you know, people have talked about the great resignation. For me, I reflect upon it. And I think there's a lot of internal dissatisfaction that it really doesn't have anything to do with the job. People have just kind of reflected on their own lives and the grass is greener. And I don't know how much the firms have played a part in creating unhappy people or happy people, but I do know that people are looking for change and they're looking to shift. And I guess to some degree, the responsibility of an organization is to recognize that. In your view, how much of a responsibility is it for a firm to be interested in their employees flourishing, I suppose, you know, the context of what we're discussing? Well, for me and for my business, it's vital. It's the heart of it all. But I also understand that that's not going to be the case for every business. Yeah, but we really prioritize it. I think that the cost of not prioritizing the um, health and well-being of your people is going to be engagement, um, turnover, burnout, um, and you know, sick leave um, when you get down to the more pointy end of the business. So ultimately, I think that morally, ethically, we have a role to play. But say say you don't buy into that, that's okay. If what you buy into is I want a high-performing workplace, then I think that that's a really good reason to take care of your people. Now, whether they're happy or not, I don't think that's the organization's responsibility. But I do think creating 
the environment in which people have the potential to really thrive is is key. And, and I think that one of the biggest drivers of dissatisfaction is the lack of autonomy over our work and, and workplaces, but also that something just went horribly wrong in the last kind of 40 years where this expectation of how many hours we do, how we look high performing, um, is that we do long hours, we work, we look busy but that doesn't necessarily equate to quality work and it certainly doesn't equate to good well-being for people. So the number of people that are burning out, um, you know, struggling with that relationship with work, uh, we have just seen like increase enormously and put a layer of, of COVID and years of working and living from home that has added to it as well. In your experience, when someone is inherently self-dissatisfied, do you feel that they tend to look at their job and they tend to blame external factors? Like, I guess what I'm saying is, let's say I'm an employer and I've got a really high potential staff, but that particular staff member doesn't have stability in his or her ability to kind of state manage. I mean, from a personal perspective, I would say the ultimate responsibility of our state falls upon the individual. And if the individual is not managing their state, there's nothing that an organization or any external intervention can do. So I guess what do you do and how do you decipher what the line is in terms of how far you go in terms of trying to impact your staff? I think that um, it's really hard to just put a, a label on to people that that simplified. What I, th- I think it's really complex and we love making things simpler, easier to understand. So I think that there is a a point where, like, so me as an employer, I look at, well, what is the root cause of this mismatch in this relationship with a particular employee or a team, yeah? Um, Because sometimes, and I think if you're looking at team dissatisfaction, tends to indicate that there's something wrong with the organisational setup. When you're looking at individual dissatisfaction, yeah, it it can go either way. But I think that you have to go to the cause. And we certainly have examples of people that uh, come and work with us at the Mind Room, either as employees or as contractors, and um, get to a point where they their own ambitions for, I want to run my own business. You know, I don't want to be part of somebody else's vision and business. I want to go do it myself. They'll go do it themselves. For some people, they'll really thrive. For the majority, though, they'll go, this is really hard work, this business stuff. I can do the psychology piece really well, but the running of a business, I don't know if that's for me. So what we try to do is be really accepting when people leave and particularly when it's leaving for those kinds of reasons so that the door is open if they want to come back. Um, We want people to see us as a part of the journey that may not be forever, but they might go away and do other things, but that they can come back um, if, again, it's the right fit and we have the right role for them. So I think going to the what's the cause here, um, and sometimes I think as business owners we have to take responsibility for, you know, we are under-resourced. We are either not paying people well enough compared to the market and they've got choices or we're not giving them enough other benefits of of working here or we're asking them to work too many hours or, or what is it that we're doing that contributes to this state of dissatisfaction? I mean, I know things like overworking or working too many hours, but what are some of the things that you've seen that create burnout or just general apathy, which I think is even more dangerous sometimes when people aren't necessarily roaring about how much they hate the place, but there's just a general lethargy or apathy. Like, what do you think creates that and how can leaders or what can they do to kind of address that or avoid it? I know for me that it tends to be that I don't feel like I've got good connections or relationships at work. So a lot of it is relational. Um, and I think that there's some great research that says that people are more likely to stay at work if they feel like they've got a friend in the workplace. So I think part of it's relational. And so that's what's been really hard about 
I guess, the last few years is a lot of that social component of work, workplaces, the incidental social stuff that just doesn't, you know, happen as easily or as well on um, in a virtual world, work world. So the relational stuff, but also the challenge. I mean, we're always looking for that right kind of balance of work that engages me because it's challenging or um, gets me to think, but it's not so challenging that it's overwhelming. So we're trying to get people into that state of the challenge is just slightly ahead of either their capacity, skills, experience, so that they're just, you know, lifting a little bit. When we're viewing high performance or trying to move towards high performance, like how critical is the capacity for an individual to create meaning in that process? Because I'm starting to develop some really philosophical views on the importance of meaning as I get older. And I'm just interested in your view about meaning. Yeah, so I, I love the work. There's an um, American professor called Mike Steger who does really interesting work in this space. For me, I think it's one. Of, it's really crucial. I think it becomes more important as we get older. Um, and if you break the idea of meaning down into this sort of three parts to it of one part of meaning is feeling like um, we can make sense of the world. Yeah. Um, so meaning as meaning or comprehension or understanding, but also meaning as, and I have a purpose in the world. So I understand it. I know what my purpose is. Um, and the purpose isn't necessarily going to come from work. Work might be part of the journey, but not the whole kind of meaning that you get. It comes from a lot of different aspects. Um, and that there's a, a valuing part and that I am valued in the world, yeah, that I have a contribution to make and other people or or um, the community that I live in values me and, and what I do. The Japanese have this lovely word, ikigai, which has been slightly misappropriated in the, the business world and online. Um, but my understanding of that word, which doesn't directly translate, is that it is, you know, the reason for getting out of bed each day. Yeah. Um, and we know when people um, have an absence of meaning that life can feel a little bit purposeless, meaningless, what's, what's the point? Um, they they have this kind of cultural expectation that everybody is born with an ikigai, a sense of meaning or purpose or direction in life, and that your life's journey is to uncover it, yep, to discover what it may be. Um, and the kinds of examples of ikigais and people talking to what their ikigai is, is, you know, my, my reason for being is to um, put food on the table for my family. And so that's why I go out and I farm fish, you know, provide in whatever form it may be. So I think that's a lot of the work that we do is help people to understand where their meaning comes from. Now, that particular idea of Ikigai was incorporated into a study of, um, you know, a longitudinal study of about 30,000 Japanese people and along with a whole lot of other health measures they were asked this question of, do you have an ikigai? Not what is your ikigai, but do you have one? And for the people that could say yes to that question and they're, they're followed across their lifetime, you see um, uh, like a significant difference in terms of health and longevity. So you are far less likely to die if you can say yes to that question which is pretty astounding, isn't it? It's like, okay, better go work out what my sense of meaning is. Now, the work that Mike Steger and colleagues has done also tells us that the search for meaning, that lowers our well-being. So you got this conundrum, right? Having a sense of meaning is good for me. I'm going to live longer. But the search for it, that's really not a great experience for people. It can often have the opposite effect. Um, but if you get through to the other side, it's worth it. But you can see why people avoid it, right? But he is advocating that we still need to search because he's oh, not yeah. saying it, it falls upon us. 
No. Right. And and hence why I guess a lot of that when we look at people that go through harrowing transformation like Mansur Tremining, uh Victor Frankel, like obviously if we would have looked at his vitals during the concentration camp, he would have been in a poor state, right? But it was on the back of that that he was able to develop a sense of meaning. Do, do you think when we look at the organizational context that companies think mission statements and things that are on the wall, they mistake that with meaning? So words and like that only make sense if we have embodied them or, you know, and so often we don't take um, the rest of the team on that journey um, or we assume that new people come in and they just buy into it. But I think in order for it to be impactful and empowering, we need to really, well, help people to understand what our mission, what our meaning is, why it's important to us and to understand where it coincides with their values, their vision for themselves as well, or if it doesn't, right? If you look at things in a general way, it's always easier, well, in my experience, to be closer to the meaning in an organisation when it's small and you're working with the founders, right? And I guess that's the struggle of any large organisation is people see it as words and they haven't embodied what you said earlier of the struggle that created the meaning. Because I think when you're in an organization early, your backs are all against the wall together. You're creating meaning together. What that says is that organizations probably should be more interested in a better indoctrination process or better co-creation of meaning. Well, how do you do that? Like, how do you make that happen? I like the word co-creation rather than indoctrination. They kind of have different implications. I just, I just watched um, We Crashed. Have you seen seen that series? No, no. Um, but yeah, that definitely was very much on the the cultish side of um, the workplace. But yeah, the co-creation I think is really, really vital, and that that is an ongoing, living, breathing process. I mean, certainly we've been challenged by starting a business 10 years ago that was two of us and, you know, we knew exactly why we were doing it and, and um, you know, our, our meaning, our vision. Um, and then it was really much more focused on how to actually bring that to life, whereas now we are a much bigger organisation with over 50 staff um, and so you're not as connected. Um, to the people every day and so yeah people don't have and that not everyone has been through the journey with us so I think there's a lot of new people that really buy into the vision that we have but there's the old timers that are like oh remember the good old days when we're just working from that scrappy little place um, versus what we've got now is a really beautiful environment that's purpose-built but maybe um feels a little more distant from from the original sense of purpose that we had. I'm the other guy in my head, and that's when I knew I had to leave the organization that I um, am leaving now because I didn't want to become the killjoy by vocalizing it. But I knew, particularly over the last couple of years, that craving to go back to the shitty little desk and you know, the, the everyone freaking out and the kind of, you know, like that period, because I think what I've come to realize is meaning is more important to me than being happy because meaning is more stable. Meaning gives me more stability and happiness is good, but I'm also aware that it's temporary. And I think that we place, particularly in our culture, this kind of permanency on happiness like a trap good luck. it's a trap though right but you think about the pursuit of happiness that word in itself that that sentence what the hell does that even mean so rj have you read the book the happiness trap i've got it here <laughs> on my bookshelf <laughs> well, i good. should read it yeah I've, I've got it is it is it worth reading uh it's great russ harris's work is fantastic it's it's a little culturally um a bit more american than australian uh so so some of it take with a grain of salt i guess would be um, in reading it, but the principles that underline it um, come from something called acceptance and commitment therapy, which is really, you know, for us, the mind dream, it underlines a lot of what we do um, as well, which is 
the acceptance of the fact that we have all sorts of emotions, all of them have a function, they all have a place in our life of which happiness is one of them, but it's not sustainable, it's not functional to be happy all the time. In fact, I think they call that mania. So yeah, like like all emotions are welcome um, and it's often the the journey, the experience with with different emotions and challenges and hard times to put good times into perspective and to be grateful and savor and appreciate when you do have the good stuff going on because it, it won't stay, right? It's not going to be constant. Let's talk about the fit mind and I'm leaving an organization. So with that, there's emotions and, you know, like things come up as they do. I'm, I'm, I'm happy I'm going, but things are coming up and I think yesterday I was at home, it was cold, clouds in the sky, you know, Melbourne and, you know, like a bit like, ugh. in that situation, I'm down, I'm feeling physically heavy, I'm maybe lacking a bit of vitamin D, I'm taking vitamin D, but what would a person that has a fit mind orientation do in a scenario like that? Like, what would they do? They would, first of all, clarity, notice their experience. And so that kind of stopping and noticing and going, oh, I don't feel my usual self. I feel heavier than I normally do. Maybe my thinking is a little bit like I'm ruminating or getting stuck on the things that aren't going well rather than the, the hopeful kind of ideas. So, so noticing those shifts in thinking and making room for them, right? Because often we just don't want them. So we resist them. Or push them away, um, you know. And that's that's we use all sorts of techniques to push that stuff away. Whether it is alcohol, drugs, food, TV, social media, um, you know, we've got all sorts of ways of distracting ourselves from this experience. So I say, speak the capacity to stop, to notice that it's happening, and to recognise what it is. Because again. Our meaning-making mind jumps into action. If I feel a little bit shitty and another person has come into the room and said something, it's really easy for me, my meaning-making mind, to go, you're the reason I feel crap at the moment, yeah? So we assign blame in places that it doesn't actually belong and we pursue that pathway. So, of course, this never gets better because I'm too busy being really annoyed at you now for making me feel shitty and these are the things that I'm going to do and say to to kind of um, keep poking at that rather than actually coming back and going, no, today's just hard. Today is hard and heavy because I'm going through a period of transition and change. The weather is changing. It's colder, darker, harder to get out and do the things that you love like running, which you know give you energy. So again, the fit mind, what are the things that build my energy? Um, right now, it's probably actually you need maybe more sleep. You need to do more stuff with family or people that matter to you. Um, it might be about pushing yourself out into the cold and the dark to, to go for a run, even though it's a little bit harder right now. So I do the energy. So I've got the clarity. I do the energy creating spaces or make room for the fact that I'm just down right now and that's okay. Um, and then it's the wise action, the flexibility. What action is actually going to move me through this? And some, sometimes when I just acknowledge it and go, like I, I have a 24-hour wallowing uh, policy where I will go, yeah, that shitty thing is going on right now. I feel terrible and it's okay and I can whinge to myself, I can wallow, I can have a glass of wine, I can do any of the things that I want to do. So permission to do it and very often that ends up in the, okay, I'm over myself now, <laughs> I'm done. Okay, let's let's do something a little bit more functional or, or helpful. That to me is a fit mind approach. Yeah, that's, that's extraordinary and I, I selfishly gave the example for myself. So there you go. So I got a bit of insight and, uh, and, uh, with the relevance. So we're going to, we're going to start to land this plan. It's just been so much value. And I think to think about in terms of where we, as the audience are in this process, some may feel that they've already on that journey or they're moving towards, um, you know, self-actualization. Some people may be just getting on the train, who knows, but let's 
let's talk about how we could start to build some habits around developing a fitter mind. So let's just say I've heard this podcast. I'm like, wow, Joe, yeah, I'm, I'm on this. The framework is simple. It's easy. Yeah. Simple and easy. Right. And tomorrow I'm going to start like, what are some of the things I can do from a practical perspective to start to, to work towards a fitter mind? Yeah. I would say that it starts by the noticing part. So the tuning into yourself. And if you don't have some kind of practice that helps you to tune in, you know, like the really common ones would be mindfulness meditation. Um, so, you know, go down, download the Headspace app and do their 10 minutes a day, 10, uh, 10 minutes a day, 10 day intro program. Costs nothing after you finish that. If you want to keep going, it costs you something. But, you know, that, that's a, a good a good place to start. There's also Insight Timer. There's a bunch of those tools out there that can teach you the skills of sitting and tuning into your own experience. Um, if you don't even know what I mean by that, like if you haven't even thought about the idea of, oh, I have thoughts and I have emotions and I have these physical sensations in my body and that they are driving my behaviour and my behaviour is then impacting how I am in the world and how I feel about my life. If you don't even have a, a framework for that, then I would say book in with a psychologist or a coach to help take you through that. Read The Happiness Trap. That's a great starting place for um, these ideas as well. So educate yourself understand that there is actually a manual that will tell you how to operate your system. Yeah. A lot of us just are copying what we have seen, our family, our peers, people on social media do. We're just mimicking behaviours and thinking that we have no choice or, or we can't shape or change our responses. You can. I think Viktor Frankl says something like uh, the space, something around the space between a thought and your behaviour, that that's where your power lies. Um, so I think getting to know yourself, having a practice that actually helps you to tune in and see, and then we go into the exploration of, okay, what are your levers? What gives you energy and what doesn't? Now, I, what I love about this is when you're actually working with a psychologist or a coach, they can help you understand why gardening gives you energy. And for another person, gardening is a chore. But if I break it down for someone who loves gardening and finds that that's really restorative for them, it's probably because they are mindful and present um, or because it's their chance to be creative and let their mind just daydream. Um, or it might be because there's a challenge in how do I actually solve the puzzle of my garden um, or it's, I'm connected to nature. So, so we help people to unpack and understand why something gives them energy or depletes them of energy so that they can begin to look at it themselves and make good decisions about, okay, it's not going to be garden, but gardening, but running will be really great for me or going and spending more time with friends or spending time on my own. These are the things that are going to be my levers. Um, so again, it comes back to understanding yourself and then being able to put all of this together. I think that's why often talking with others and, and unpacking it can really help. Yeah, that's brilliant. I think what you what you're saying is we need to become curious right about our operating system like if we we have to stop the autopilot and i think that's why in many ways i'm so grateful that i had my alcoholism and addiction because it forced me like there was an existential crisis that stopped me and made me look at it and i think for those that think they're okay there's a danger in staying in that gear because they're not feeling the heat or pain enough. It's not blaringly obvious that they need to do something, but that doesn't mean that they can't stop and tweak and optimize as well. Like it doesn't have to be like, Oh my God, if I don't stop this behavior, I'm going to die. Right. Let me, let me tell you one last story. I have a delightful, delightful client who came in to see me 
anyway, after we'd been seeing each other for a few months, she mentioned to some of her friends over drinks that she was seeing a psychologist and they're immediately like, oh, my God, what's wrong? Why are you seeing a psychologist? And she kind of looked at them and went, oh, no, I'm seeing a psychologist because I want to be premium. Yes. (laughs) And this idea of, oh, there wasn't actually, you know, anything wrong. Now, We've been seeing each other for a few years now. She checks in from time to time and sometimes she's coming back because there is an issue in her life. But we've also done all the work that she knows the levers and really I'm just acting as her coach, yeah, just reminding her, reminding her of, hey, remember, you you know how to do this. These these are the things that you know how to do or, or how to apply what you know to this particular context of your life. But I love that idea of don't wait till it's broken, you know, speaking to someone and getting support to help you be premium, to maximise your potential. Um, that's that's the best place to start. It, it goes back to that whole proactive positioning, right? And that's what the mind room, I think, just the way that you guys have positioned it, have you framed it in a much more aspirational way. Yeah. It goes back to our original conversation, right? Like, it's not like something's broken and I've got to go see Joe. It's like, no, one all, you know, like I'm going to be Pete Pyramid, right? Like, so I think it's just, it's just framing. And I think we, to your earlier point, we come from a world where anything of the psycho- psychological uh, factors have always been looked at as pathology. And that's where we get the shame and the stigma and all the issues that come with that, which I think is um, really disheartening for us as, as a profession and an industry when it's like, no, no, we hold the key to you actually living a rich, rewarding and meaningful life and um, you can you can have the keys. They're here. <laughs> you don't have to wait. We finally made it and we finally did it. I'm so thankful, Joe, that we have got Fingers Yeah, crossed. no, it's done. It's, it's all good. I've been checking the tech and I can't wait to get this live. I, I really thank you so much for your time, yeah? Yeah, it's a joy. Thank you so much, RJ. And I look forward to hearing about the next phase of your adventure. And well, you will. But before you go, tell our audience where they can find you. Uh, we're themindroom.com.au. Uh, you can find us our website or we're also on socials on Instagram and uh, Facebook at The Mind Room. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Ajay.